This is NEPM's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Meany with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at NEPM.org. Jazz on the Mode at New England Public Media, and uh, speaking now with Ricky Riccardi for part two of our uh, multi-part interview about Louis Armstrong. Ricky's uh, second biographical volume on Armstrong was published in September. It's called Heartful of Rhythm, the Big Band Years of Louis Armstrong, and talking about the years of 1929 through 46. And last, uh, last time around, Ricky, we were talking about Louis Armstrong, the transition from Chicago to New York, and some of the great recordings he made early on in that period, including uh, I Can't Give You Anything But Love and Ain't Misbehavin' and Stardust, uh, which uh, jumped us up to uh, late 1931. But um, uh, we're still sort of in this period of transition, uh, for my purposes at least, and for, uh, for uh, sort of like maintaining a narrative here. So... Uh, thanks for joining us again, and um, uh, I've been—I uh, I don't spend as much time with Louis Armstrong as you do. I don't imagine any, anyone does, but I do spend a fair amount of time with him, and I am struck always by what um, a man who seemed imbued with a passion for life, a love for what he did and who he was and what he had made of his life, and you quote Jackie Byard, who's kind of a local hero in Massachusetts circles. He was born in Worcester. And you quote Jackie early on in your book, talking about his experience of meeting Louis Armstrong as uh, something along the lines of being the most natural man he had ever been in the company of. Can you talk a little bit about what that context was for Jackie Byard at the time? And I'm struck by a kind of triangulation here between Armstrong, Jackie Byard, and Jason Moran, who was a Jackie Byard mm-hmm. protege who's uh, apparently um, uh, doing some work at the Louis Armstrong House Museum uh, uh, in Queens. Indeed, yeah. Now that, that's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Byard gave it to Downbeat in 1970, but I think he mentioned it was, it was Kenny Clark brought him to a rehearsal. Uh, so it must have been sometime in the 40s. It might have been a, um, a recording session. But it was early on, and just those few moments that Bayard spent with Armstrong, you know, off stage, off camera, just hanging out with him, you know, he said tears almost came to his eyes because he had never been around somebody so natural. And that was something that I wanted to convey because I've spent so much of my life and so much of my research with that kind of offstage Armstrong. I mean, clearly I never met him, but we have these tapes, we have these interviews, we have, you know, these moments where you get to hear Armstrong in the company of friends, fans, musicians, strangers, reporters. 
And it's unbelievable how comfortable he was in his own skin. And I think this is something that drove people crazy. And you can almost um, separate a line of the people who met Lewis and felt he was so natural and loved him. And the people who didn't meet Lewis and only saw him on stage and thought that there had to be, you know, something phony going on. Um, like John John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet. I mean, he told Ralph J. Gleason in 1960. It was right after the Newport Jazz Festival. He goes, did you see Lewis Armstrong up there jumping around, smiling, doing all that to make the people happy? I mean, that's fake. That's phony. You know, that, that's not real. Uh, and so the people who only saw that side of him, that's how they felt. But the people like Dexter Gordon, who spent time at Armstrong's band, and Kenny Clark, and Dizzy eventually when they became neighbors. I mean, all he had to do was spend a few minutes in Louis Armstrong's presence, and you would realize that, oops, you know, if I thought that this was all an act, no, this is somebody who, you know, loves life, is comfortable in his own skin, he's the life of the party, he's telling jokes, he's kind, he's got wisdom, he's got advice. Um, you know, I mean, the difference offstage, of course, you know, he could curse up a blue streak, he could get angry, he could get hurt, you know, he, he was a human being, he wasn't just a, you know, a one-note joyous figure, <laughs> nobody could do that 24 hours a day, the life he led. Um, but what you see is what you get. And I, I also, after the, I quoted Bayard, I also quoted Miles Davis of all people who said that, you know, Armstrong was doing, uh, on stage what he was doing off stage. But, you know, when you do it on stage in front of white people, they call you an uncle Tom, but he was just being himself. And so it's, it's, you know, we're, we're 50 years almost since Armstrong passed away. And a, a lot of people still, I think, have trouble buying that. You know, they're still looking for the mystery. There's an interview I almost quoted in the book. I didn't get time to, but Cy Oliver interviewed Lucille Armstrong in the mid-70s. And the two of them actually shared a laugh, talking about how by that point there were so many books out and so many people trying to uncover the mysteries of Louis Armstrong and what was he really like and what was he trying to hide. And Lucille just laughs and she's like, listen, I lived with that man for 30 years. He was the same on stage as off stage. And all these people, you know, they're looking for something. And Louis found it funny. But, you know, there were <laughs> everybody trying to psychoanalyze him and realize that, well, there's, yeah, there's something deeper here. And no, it's pretty much, you know, people ask me, what, what are the big revelations on those private tapes? And they're really isn't anything explosive except you spend time listening to him you realize that there he is you know this is a fully formed human being who is comfortable and himself at all times no matter the company it's not like he's switching I have to be a certain way in front of rich people I have to be a certain way in front of black people I have to be a certain way in front of journalists nope he is himself all the time it's uh it's common knowledge I want to say about Armstrong but still worth uh, reiterating, uh, and you can do it better than anyone, just what um, the, the sort of mass of, of, of tapes, of audio tapes that Armstrong made of his, of his conversations, of his thoughts, the mass of letter writing and correspondence that he maintained over the years uh, uh, as a, a man who carried a typewriter with him virtually everywhere. It's a great surprise to almost everyone to whom I have you know, described uh, this uh, this uh, this element of Louis Armstrong's life, and yet it's um, it's something that you draw on extensively in your work on Armstrong, and it gives us just phenomenal insight into who this man was, and who he may have uh, been a kind of archetype for in Black America through those years, in that he documented himself so thoroughly 
uh, through uh, such a long period of time. Give us a little idea of what it may have been that motivated Armstrong to keep such a, a kind of comprehensive personal file on himself uh, through the years. I mean, to me, the answer to that is actually on a couple of tapes where Armstrong actually uses the phrase for posterity. You know, there's one tape where he gets in a fight with his wife, Lucille, and she doesn't know he's recording it. And she tells him to turn off the tape recorder and then starts cursing at him and says, erase that tape. And he goes, no, it's for posterity. And there's another tape where um, the British writer Max Jones sent Lewis a list of questions to answer for his um, the biography he was writing. And Lewis wrote out all his answers, but then he read the letter into his tape recorder and he kept the copy of it. And you hear him on tape kind of stumbling over a few words and kind of proofreading on the fly. And at one point he's having difficulty reading his own handwriting. And then he says to almost no one in particular, he goes, well, you're going to get the letter, but I'm just doing this for my posterity. And so to me, that's it. He, you know, I always have to make sure people know. I mean, this this is not like some kind of wild egomaniac sociopath. I mean, you know, Armstrong is down home. He's humble. You know, he's approachable. All that stuff is true. But he realizes early on that this story is important, that he overcame, you know, racism. I mean, not just overcame it, but had to live with it every day. And he changed the sound of music and he broke down these barriers. And, um, Trum Young's daughter, the trombonist daughter, uh, visited the Armstrong archives two years ago and told me a story of Lewis every time he would be in Chicago. Um, people would find out he, where he was staying and they would wait there for a handout. And so, you know, he would get out of the elevator and just start giving money away. And of course, his manager, Joe Glazer, realized this and, you know, chewed Armstrong out. And Armstrong said, you know, what do I need money for? They're going to write about me in the history books one day. And so to me, it's all coming from that perspective making these tapes, writing these letters, amassing these scrapbooks, writing manuscripts, everything that he saved that is now part of the Louis Armstrong archives, that's his attempt to be in control of his own story. I'm sure he read the stuff that was being written about him. And, you know, I already mentioned people trying to psychoanalyze him and, and this and that and always in kind of competition with his younger self and why is he doing this and why you know, he, he doesn't know what's going on with racism. He doesn't know what's happening here. And so the tapes answer all those questions. And he knew what he was doing. I mean, Lucille, his wife, gave an interview after he died saying that he specifically told her, don't get rid of these tapes. They're important. Don't sell them. And so, you know, I come along, born nine years after he died, when I first started my research back at Rutgers, you know, I tried interviewing everybody who was alive and there was still five all-stars left. I interviewed Dan Morgenstern. I interviewed Jack Bradley, George Avakian. And I thought I had a pretty good sense of the man. But at the end of the day, like my, my thesis that I wrote on, on Armstrong's later years at Rutgers, it was still mostly me saying that, well, you know, he's still a great musician and he felt this way and he was tough on race and he did this and he did that. And, you know, this is Ricky, Ricky, Ricky telling the story. And then in 2006, I made my first appointment at the Louis Armstrong Archives, and I didn't even know where to begin. They handed me a giant binder and said, here's the tape descriptions. Which one do you want to hear? And so I said, uh, let's pick this one. And one seemed kind of interesting. It was a radio interview in Benton Harbor, Michigan, 1956. And it was like a 25-minute tape. And on that tape, he's talking about how he's playing better than ever. He's talking about how people were coming up to him and saying that, you know, we remember when you were really blown. And he's like, well, I'm playing better now than I ever played. And, you know, he defends himself against, you know, accusations of uh, progressive music. His music's not progressive. And I listened to that one tape, and I said, well, that's the key. I said, 
no matter what I do for the rest of my life, I need to make his voice the dominant voice. You know, I'm I'm just a vessel, and I try not to put myself into it too often because, you know, sometimes people look at me. I, I can't deny it. You know, it's like, what's that young white guy doing, you know, writing about this historic black figure? What does he know? What is all this kind of stuff? And all my research, my books, my lectures, everything else just falls back on Lewis's own words. You know, just all I want is him to kind of have the floor to defend himself. You know, you can read his comments and still disagree with him. Like in, in the current book, you know, I have him talking about, you know, his views on women or defending the roles, the film roles he made that we feel are so problematic and all this stuff. You can still disagree with him, but at least let the man speak for himself. And so that's been the uh, the core thing with both of my books. I feel like, you know, I always tell people these are not the last words on Louis Armstrong. It's not the definitive, the end story. Yeah, whatever I write is it. No, 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 no. His, his life is open to a million interpretations. But I could at least say that my work, the cornerstone, is his own words and the materials he left behind that he wanted people to know how he felt about this stuff. Not to belabor this point too much, but um, uh, I'm still curious, and I have been as long as I've been aware of Armstrong as a as a record keeper, as it were. Um, that in the um, annals of jazz, we have numerous uh, oral histories. We have, as told to autobiographies from Jelly Roll Morton and Sidney Bechet and many other musicians, but I can't think of anyone who was so deeply motivated to keep a record of his or her own life, almost on a day-to-day basis, that, that we have with Armstrong. Can you think of anything um, that might have <laughs> inspired that sort of unique uh, undertaking uh, of his uh, vis-a-vis the rest of um, you know the sort of music world that he was a part of? There's really nothing else to compare it to. I mean, I say it all the time that the, the exact archives we have, the 700 reel-to-reel tapes and 85 scrapbooks and everything that he saved, I mean, that could have been any musician back then. That could have been, you know, the third trumpeter in the, you know, Count Basie Orchestra. If, if anybody was doing this to document that life, that period, that era, the ins and outs, the day-to-day existence, I mean, that would be history. That's incredible. But the fact that Louis Armstrong <laughs> is the one who actually did it, um, in terms of insp- inspiration, I mean, you know, nobody in his circle was doing this, that's for sure. I mean, he was inspired in in small ways, but for example, the whole thing with the tapes, uh, two people were doing it first. You know, Ernie Anderson had a tape recorder and taped um, his Symphony Hall concert in Boston and then played it for Armstrong afterwards. And Armstrong thought that was the the neatest thing in the world. And so when he eventually gets it... That's 1947, right? That was in 47. Yeah, Armstrong doesn't get his first machine until December 1950, but he always remembered and Anderson remembered that feeling of being able to hear what he just did on stage. So Armstrong doesn't record every night, of course, but he does record the band, you know, maybe every few months or he'll record a radio broadcast or somebody will send him a bootleg tape and he studied those shows. So that that's part 1, you know, I could use this technology 
to improve my live performances, to improve my solos, or, hey, you know, that song that I've been doing for the last six months, now it's not getting the response, it's out of the act, or that joke I made on the fly got a huge laugh, it's in the act, and so that's part one. Then Jack Teagarden actually had a tape recorder before Armstrong, and he only used it um, to collect his old records. And I found there's a blurb somewhere there in Downbeat somewhere in early 1950-51 saying, you know, Jack Teagarden is on the hunt for collectors to send him his old 78s. You know, he's bought a tape recorder and he wants to, you know, copy everything to tape. And so it's like, all right, well, Armstrong does that too. But none of these guys are just turning on the machine, hitting record, and getting these like two-hour conversations where people are telling jokes and getting angry and making fun of each other and listening to music and ordering Chinese food and smoking and drinking. You know, it's just like these fly-in-the-wall moments. You can't find that, you know, anywhere else uh, in that period. And so, like I said, the fact that it's Armstrong who's, you know, in control of that, uh, it's it's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Now, there are lots of stories to tell in the Louis Armstrong uh, life, and um, uh, I intend that we'll get to uh, uh, two or three of those at least in this uh, edition of, uh, of Jazz Beat. Uh, but for now, uh, let's listen to uh, a recording of Louis Armstrong's uh, that you uh, bring uh, nice focus to in Heart Full of Rhythm, and this is I'm a Ding Dong Daddy from Dumas. I got to tell you, Ricky, when I first saw the title alone as a kid listening to Armstrong, I kind of like overlooked that. It just looks like such a goofy title that I didn't pay the close attention to it that it deserves. Tell us a little bit more about this before we listen to it. I mean, Ding Dong Daddy, it's uh, it's this kind of it's almost like a novelty country song. There's a few versions you could find out there from like 1929, 1930 has a real tongue twisting lyric and um you know, OK Records, they just had their their fingers on the pulse of what was popular. And and because other artists were recording Ding Dong Daddy, somehow it ends up in Louis Armstrong's lap. And from a chord change perspective, I think he ate it up alive because it's it's faster, but it's similar to um, How Come You Do Me Like You Do, which he had already recorded at Henderson. You know, there's hints of Jada, there's hints of uh, Sonny Rollins, Doxy in there. So they're, they're great changes for a jazz musician. I think you Before Sonny Rollins was born. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I, I, I think he, t- he took one look at the lyrics and realized, well, I'm not getting through that. And so when he listened to the vocal, you know, he uh, he actually alludes to it. He just starts scatting and says, I done forgot the words. So he, he found a clever way to get out of the, um, the tongue twister. Um, but then he picks up the horn. And for this era, we get, you know, one of his greatest extended solos. It's about a four-chorus solo. But anybody who is alive to hear him play this at Sebastian's Cotton Club um, for the rest of their lives, whether it was Lionel Hampton, Teddy Buckner, Cootie Williams, they all kind of agreed that this California period was actually Armstrong's peak. And he would sometimes play Ding Dong Daddy. They said, you know, someone had a memory of a 15-minute broadcast that the entire 15 minutes was Ding Dong Daddy. (laughs) And it was just Lewis taking one chorus after another. Um, and so things to, to listen for, you know, I, I mentioned the vocal, but there's one break in there that formed the seed of um, Dizzy Gillespie's Salt Peanuts. There's another descending line that he plays. Bump, bump, 
bump, bump, bump, bump. He just repeats that, and that appears in a Count Basie 1930s arrangement of Limehouse Blues that was only discovered a few years ago in the Savory Collection. And then, um, you know, other parts of the solo, Jonah Jones quoted, and uh, I think Bill Coleman remembered the solo being scored for big bands in the 30s. And so I make the point in the book that this is an example of a solo that you can find it literally influenced the way people improvised it influenced arrangements it influenced compositions uh just the whole world uh, the whole musical world was listening to a record like this and getting food for thought well here it is lewis armstrong i'm a ding dong daddy from dumas <laughs> That was Louis Armstrong's I'm a Ding Dong Daddy from Dumas, one of the Armstrong recordings that's highlighted by Ricky Riccardi in his uh, new biographical volume on Armstrong, Heart Full of Rhythm, The Big Band Years of Louis Armstrong, and I'm speaking with Ricky Riccardi for our Jazz Beat podcast here on New England Public Media. Ricky, uh, there are just so many uh, episodic uh, uh, elements to Louis Armstrong's career and especially, it seems to me, during this somewhat transitional period from sort of 1920s jazz hero into uh, becoming a genuine star of American popular music. And uh, I think of what a rough road uh, it was, even for uh, a figure as popular and established as Louis Armstrong. And, of course, one of the things that, um, that uh, makes it uh, a little rougher was the experience that Armstrong had that involved uh, not an uncommon uh, element in the uh, showbiz world, especially of his day, but that of gangsters and mobsters and, and people who had, um, had, uh, had, uh, had their hooks into uh, nightclubs and speakeasies and, and the whole world in which Louis Armstrong uh, uh, lived and thrived. And, and, uh, but there was a very consequential element to a run-in with uh, mobsters at one point in, in Armstrong's career. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, with with his ascent into stardom, you know, Armstrong needed management. Lil, Lil Hardin was basically his de facto manager, his second wife in the 20s, and really pushed him to get work and, you know, record for OK, write his composition. So to me, she's the architect of his career. But once he kind of crossed over, 
Uh, I think Armstrong would be the first to admit that he had no patience for the business side of the music business. And so he, he needed a manager to, to handle that stuff. And so the first one was Tommy Rockwell, who we've talked about, who really creates the blueprint for Armstrong's pop success, recording all these Tin Pan Alley songs for OK, coming to New York, going on the road, that whole thing. But somewhere in 1930, um, I've deduced that Armstrong and Rockwell kind of started separating a bit. And Armstrong ends up in California, and there's a manager out there named Johnny Collins. And I get deep into Collins's kind of shady background. Uh, he was a booker for RKO and uh, all he had major, major vaudeville credentials, but he also had a drinking problem and was arrested and divorced and nervous breakdowns and kind of a, a crazy figure. There's, you know, some some really kind of cringing, uh, cringe-inducing racist histories there that I found Variety magazine reporting on in the 1900s, him, uh, Collins, buying amusement park, uh, you know, novelty acts, you know, basically one was dunking African-Americans, you know, you would, you would hit the target and they would fall in the water. And so this is where Collins is coming from. W wasn't, his father the, uh, wasn't his father the chief of police in Chicago? In Chicago, yes. So Collins has a law background, but he's still a shady cat. And so, you know, he um, he starts booking Armstrong and does well. I mean, there's no denying it that Collins gets Armstrong the Sebastian's Cotton Club gig. He gets him uh, into the movies for the first time. And so Armstrong's like, great, this guy's fine. You're my manager now. Well, he never officially terminated Tommy Rockwell. So in the summer of 1930, Rockwell sends a contract saying, at some point in, I think he gave him to like January 1931, you need to return to New York and play Connie's Inn, which was owned by the Immerman brothers, um, George and Connie, but also had a um, heavy influence by Dutch Schultz and you know, other underworld figures. Well, Armstrong and Collins kind of ripped that up and they're like, well, we're doing fine out here. So they stay in California. Um, Armstrong ends up going back to Chicago in April of 31 and they're still doing their thing. Well, Rockwell is now at the end of his rope. So he shows up to Chicago and according to the press brings three hoodlums with them. And uh, they they got to Armstrong and Johnny Collins. The hoodlums threatened to burn Collins' mustache off, and they wanted six thousand dollars right then and there. And and Armstrong wouldn't budge. I mean, yeah, they they got the price down to like a thousand. He still wouldn't budge. He gave an interview later, and he said they didn't want me dead. They just wanted me alive so they can get my money. <laughs> so, um, so Rockwell goes back to the hotel, his hotel room. And apparently at that point, Collins called in a, a gangster favor of his own. And Rockwell was threatened that if he wasn't on the first train, you know, so they thought that they, they got away with it. But uh, as I mentioned, the Immermans uh, didn't go away so easily. And they sent basically a murderer um, named Frankie Foster um, into Armstrong's dressing room and Foster held Armstrong at gunpoint, marched him over to a telephone booth, and when Armstrong got on the phone, it was one of the Immermans there saying, so when are you coming to New York? And Armstrong said, yeah, I'll be there in the morning. Uh, but instead of going to New York, Armstrong ran to Johnny Collins. Collins now called in his police background, and uh, you know they, they rounded up apparently every gangster they could find in Chicago, and Armstrong needed a police escort to the gig every night. And once Chicago was getting too hot for him, I mean, one reporter went to do a simple interview with Armstrong at the Savoy in May of 31, and there were sawed-off shotguns back there and bodyguards pacing around. They realized this was too hot. 
And so they embark on a tour and they go through the Midwest and go through the South. But almost every step of the way, there's more gangsters and Armstrong needs more bodyguards and there's more harassment. The Union, New Orleans and this and that. And so this dogs Armstrong for a while and ends up in court in the beginning of 32. And Armstrong wins the court case. Johnny Collins is allowed to be his manager, but now he has to pay off Rockwell for the next three or four years. Part of Armstrong's weekly salary went to Rockwell. And he still really couldn't perform in New York or Chicago just out of fear. And this, you know, hitting the fast forward button, this was the life he was living until Joe Glazer, another gangster, comes onto the scene in 1935. And I get deeply into Glazer's shady background in the book. But, the you know, once he signed up with Glazer, I have a quote where Armstrong says, you know, to play ball with a gangster, you know, you need a gangster yourself. And having Joe Glazer as his manager, all of that stuff disappeared. And for the last 35 years of his life, he didn't have to worry about extortion and gunpoints and all that stuff. He was able to just blow with peace of mind. And so it was... A crazy five years there, and some people still look at the Armstrong-Glazer relationship, which is super complex, and they say, well, you know, it's a shame a black genius needed a gangster like that to get through, but Armstrong never looked at it that way, that's for sure. To him, you know, he needed protection. Glazer gave him protection, and I don't think Armstrong ever forgot those experiences of the harassment and the being held at gunpoint, and he was not about to go through that ever again, and Glazer saw to that. Another recording of Louis Armstrong's, Ricky, that you bring uh, a little extra focus to is I'm Confessin' That I Love You, a song that's remained a kind of standard in jazz down through the decades. Um, Louis Armstrong's version uh, is, uh, is a gem, a work of uh, great beauty. And you talk about the sensuality that's conveyed in this uh, song. I, I think it was Buck Clayton who said that he was impressed with this, not for the execution, but, th- but for the feeling that came through in Armstrong's performance. Uh, give us a little bit more about it, I'm confessing. Yeah, I mean, sensuality is one of the, yeah, you can name a thousand things, but sensuality is one of the most important things Armstrong brings to uh, the music world, especially to the, the singing world. I mean, you, you listen to the pop singers of that era and you just don't find it you know maybe Bing Crosby is getting there but in the summer of 1930 you know he's he's still with the rhythm boys he's not he really hasn't found that um that side yet or at least the public hasn't discovered it yet so here it is in all of its glory and it's an African-American which is even more unusual I mean you know people made a fuss uh, rightly so, you know, it's in the 1940s when Nat King Cole singing I Love You for Sentimental Reasons or Billy Eckstein, you know, you know, but here we're talking 12, 15 years earlier, we have an African-American uh, singing on one side of an okay pop record, not a race record, I'm confessing that I love you. And on the flip side, if I could be with you one hour tonight, which, you know, if I could be with you, I'd love you strong, you know, I mean, all the, it is right out there. And again, the records speak for themselves, but go on YouTube, go on Spotify, and look up the other 1930 versions by Rudy Valley and by Guy Lombardo and by all the other bands. Yeah, these were pop hits of the day. And then listen to Armstrong. And I think that sensuality, I mean, I think Buck Clayton also said that women used to faint when he would sing these songs. And we just don't 
think of Louis Armstrong as that figure. You know, we got the the sweating, smiling guy in his 60s, you know, doing Hello, Dolly. It's like, well, you know, what's sexy about that? But in 1930 in California and on the radio and in nightclubs and theaters, you know, he was a young man, even singing these songs the way he did with the moans and the, all the alliteration, babies and growls and all that stuff. I mean, no one had attacked this music like this before. And again, you know, the, the double genius of Louis Armstrong is I'm just talking about the vocal. But then he picked up the trumpet, and it's one of his most beautiful solos. I mean, there's one break he takes in there that, that Benny Goodman and Lionel Hampton turned into a composition called Pick a Rib. And um, I think Stanley Dance had a story. I, I think it was Stanley Dance. Someone had a story that uh, Earl Hines did a tour in the 60s and it had, you know, Roy Eldridge and all these swing era stars and somebody mentioned Armstrong's Confessing and there was like five, six musicians all started singing his solo note for note in unison, like, you know, almost 40 years later. And so uh, tremendously impactful record, I'm Confessing. Well, here it is, Louis Armstrong, I'm Confessing that I love you. Louis Armstrong, I'm confessing that I love you. I'm speaking with Ricky Riccardi, author of Heart Full of Rhythm, The Big Band Years of Louis Armstrong, a period encompassing the uh, years of 1929 through 46. Ricky, um, you mentioned Lil Hardin, Lil Hardin Armstrong, uh, a few minutes ago, and, uh, and um, credited her with being a kind of architect of Louis Armstrong's career. Give us a little bit more about what you mean by that and uh, who Lil Hardin was. Well, Lil, I mean, she's from Memphis, and, you know, she was a trained pianist. She went to Fisk University. She could play classics. She could play anything. But with the uh, the jazz vogue and blues vogue in the late teens, she ends up in Chicago. She gets a job demonstrating sheet music. She knows Jelly Roll Morton a little bit. 
uh, and ends up as the pianist in King Oliver's band. And most of those musicians couldn't read music, so one of her jobs was to kind of introduce the songs, teach everybody the parts. And, you know, I don't think she really had any features or solos or anything. She just kind of pounded out the chords, you know, four beats to a bar. And played the chimes. Right, the chimes blues. That's her big feature. So Louis Armstrong joins um, the Oliver Band in 22. And Lil, I mean, she's very upfront that she didn't think he was attractive. You know, he was 226 pounds, 5'6", and he was making eyes at her, and she wanted nothing to do with him. And, you know, and she also admitted that she didn't even really know too much about the music. Like, she knew her job was just to pound out those chords, but she didn't really, wasn't even really listening. I mean, this is her, her telling of it. But two things happened. The first time they went to the recording studio, the band set up, this is Jeanette Records, uh, they set up you know, with the old recording horn, and when they tried a song, Armstrong's tone was so big, when they listened to the playback, all you heard was him. And he had to stand 15, 20 feet away in, in the hallway just so they can get a better balance. And so that was the start of Lil thinking, okay, you know, he's maybe he's got something. And then one day King Oliver just confided in Lil outright. You know, as long as little Lewis is with me, I'll always be the king. He'll, he'll never overtake me. And that was the moment that Lil realized that, oh, you know, he's actually holding Lewis back. So one thing leads to another. They begin a romantic relationship. They get married in February 1924. They go on the road with Ar- with Oliver. But it's shortly after where Hardin realizes that, um, you know, Armstrong is being taken advantage of and tells her husband, listen, I didn't marry no second trumpet player. <laughs> so either you're going to quit uh, King Oliver or this marriage is, is not going to work. And Armstrong was horrified at the thought because Oliver was like a, a second father to him but he realized that Lil had his best interests in mind and so he he listened to her and then so she encouraged him to join Fletcher Henderson's band in New York but when Henderson wasn't featuring him properly and wouldn't let him sing she made him quit that band and insisted he come back to Chicago and join her band at the Dreamland where she billed him as the world's greatest cornetist which resulted in a tremendous amount of publicity but made him very embarrassed because now musicians were showing up all over the city to hear the world's greatest cornetist. And he basically had to, you know, fight for his life every night, a cutting contest to kind of prove himself. And so she would encourage him at home. He would, you know, he'd be all annoyed saying, man, people are coming to hear me miss that high F. And she would tell him, well, make G's at home, you know? And, so, and she said that you know, he'd, he'd be tooting around the house, but then, you know, he, he'd have that G in his back pocket. So when he showed up on the gig, he could hit the F. And then she would hear him whistling and say, write that down, send it to the library of Congress. That's a composition. And, um, when he came back to Chicago, she got the attention of OK Records and, Anytime Armstrong appeared as a sideman on OK, whether it was with Oliver in 23 or Bessie Smith or Clarence Williams, uh, those records sold, but his name was never on the records. And so she drummed up some attention there with a guy named E.A. Fern to give Armstrong a contract and begin recording the Hot Fives. And of course, she brought compositions. Lewis brought compositions. They had a home in Chicago with a, a piano and, you know, she would rehearse. She would show him classical music and all this stuff. So... That is the impact of Lil. Even 
cutting out clippings. She Every time Lewis was mentioned in the, in the newspaper, she would cut it out and put it in a scrapbook. And, and Lewis himself mentioned that he would have to take that scrapbook around to get work, you know, if he had to prove himself. That was his resume back then. And we actually still have that scrapbook uh, at the Lewis Armstrong archives. So Lil cannot be given enough credit, you know, everything I said, because Lewis, you know, it's not to say that, yeah, I'm not insinuating he was lazy or anything, but anytime he told his story, the punctuation mark, the high point, the climax of his entire life was joining King Oliver in Chicago. To him, everything else was gravy. And he gave interviews in which he said that he wished Oliver featured him more. And he wished that Oliver let him play more, not because he wanted the credit, but he knew that he had more fire and more in the way of chops than Oliver did. And, you know, Armstrong even compared it to Erskine Hawkins, how Hawkins didn't take every trumpet solo on those records, but his name was still on the record. And, you know, he became a huge band leader. And so I think Armstrong would have been thrilled to be a sideman, propping up his mentor slash father figure, earning a living, you know, in the big city and everybody lives happily ever after. But Lil is the reason why we have the Hot Fives and the Fletcher Henderson period and these compositions and the world's greatest trumpeter. Now, she eventually pushes him right out of her life because, you know, it got to the point uh, to hear Lewis tell it where she was, you know, picking the clothes he was going to wear and she was correcting his English and correcting his grammar. And, you know, anytime he, you know, he was using the wrong spoon at dinner, the wrong fork. And yeah, so he couldn't take that. And so when he met a dancer in Chicago named Alpha Smith, who was just a fawning groupie, wanted, <laughs> didn't want to tell him anything, but just was like, oh, you're the greatest. Then he began uh, palling around with Alpha, and she eventually becomes wife number three. But for that period, you know, there's something there with Lewis and Lil. I mean, my book actually ends with the story of Lewis and Lil, because she, I think, uh, carried a torch for him until the end. They remained very close for a while. Then they had a falling out in the 50s, but they uh, they reconciled in the 60s. And we have the tapes. I mentioned the, the Max Jones tape from 1970, in which Lewis gives her all the credit. Said, yeah, people called him henpecked and all this stuff. He said, but, you know, she knew it was best for me. And it goes, and she proved it, didn't she? And so they really did have that bond. And, of course, you know, you, you couldn't write, uh, Shakespeare couldn't write a drama like this where Lewis dies in July of 71. And then Lil dies at the memorial concert <laughs> for Lewis in Chicago in August of 71. And uh, I quote Lucille Armstrong, because Lucille really is, you know, the one for Lewis. You know, she had the right temperament and knew how to handle him. But when Lewis died, Lucille made sure that Lil was invited to the funeral and that Lil stayed with them and that Lil rode uh, in the, the limo to the funeral because she said if she didn't, she knew that Lewis was going to strike her dead from the afterlife. <laughs> so everybody knew that Lewis and Lil, that was a deep, deep connection. Nicely told, too. Um, and you mentioned King Oliver. And... I shouldn't say I'm surprised by it, but uh, Lewis was devoted to King Oliver right to the end. I, I can recall him on television shows, Dick Cavett, Mer, uh, Mike Douglas, uh, programs like that, uh, intoning King Oliver uh, as uh, really the most important figure in his life and, and singing his praises, talking about uh, how creative uh, King Oliver was, that he, uh, he, like he invented things, and, uh, and they still applied. It was amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, those t- those TV shows. I mean, how many people in the audience watching Merv Griffin and Johnny Carson in 1970 <laughs> knew about King Oliver? But Lewis made sure that no one would forget. Made sure that his his name and memory would would always be there. Um, and Armstrong did say, you know, what you just alluded to that Armstrong. I'm sorry that Oliver was a creator and that all of his ideas, he said, you hear him in five part brass now. And he goes, how many creators can you think of, you know, name? I mean, he would get angry about it sometimes. So 98% of the time, anytime he mentioned Oliver, it was just so with so much love and respect, but he also learned, you know, what not to do. And I mentioned that in the book a few times, there's a few interviews where Armstrong kind of goes into the other end about how Oliver didn't trust managers and he only felt comfortable around musicians in New Orleans. And then he had a good thing going in Chicago and didn't want to go to New York and turn down the cotton club. And, and he didn't take care of his teeth and ended up with pyorrhea and, and could barely play anymore. And so Armstrong observed all of that. And by the 1930s, you know, Oliver didn't even have a recording contract after 1930, 31. And, uh, you know, so he observed all that. And I think he felt horrible for Oliver. And, you know, there's the beautiful story of their their last meeting in Savannah where they gave Oliver money and, he you know, he showed up for one last hurrah. But Armstrong was like, OK, that's the man that I think was God. And, I you know, everything I do, I aspire to be like him. But I'm going to trust managers and I'm going to change with the the times and I'm going to take advantage of these deals and I'm going to trust musicians from all over the world, not just New Orleans. And, you know, so, you know, Oliver's also there to kind of, you know, be like the, you know, the warning, like, you know, don't end up like this. You know, Armstrong is a fanatic about his lips. He's a fanatic about his teeth. Um, and so, you know, Oliver is an influence more than just the notes on the page. You know, he basically is there to serve right from wrong. You know, this is how you do it and this is how you don't do it. Right. Well, speaking of King Oliver and Louis Armstrong, um, let's uh, wrap up this edition of, uh, of our um, uh, jazz beat with Ricky Riccardi with the story of Louis Armstrong's return to New Orleans in, I think it's 1931, about nine years after he had left New Orleans to uh, go up to Chicago, uh, answering the call from King Oliver. And uh, this is such a moving uh, part of your narrative um, and richly detailed. Uh, I, I keep going back to it, and, uh, and I'd love to hear you uh, tell us a little bit more about Louis Armstrong's first return to his hometown in 1931. Sure. Now, this this was a big, big moment for Armstrong because this is the definition of, you know, local boy makes good. Um, but things had changed. You know, I, I named the chapter I done got northern fired, which is a, a quote that Armstrong said when telling the story about this period, because he leaves New Orleans and. You know, by far, those are the the most important years of his life. You know, he learns about race and food and music and women and everything in between. Uh, But he also always referred to New Orleans as a disgustingly segregated city. And so not to say he didn't encounter racism everywhere, but, you know, he spent the next nine years basically straddling Chicago, Harlem and Los Angeles with the Central Avenue scene. And so, you know, just three vibrant African-American communities with musicians and entertainers and comedians and just, you know, seeing a whole different side of life. And even the white people that he met, you know, the musicians 
Muggsy Spanier, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, you know, uh, yeah, they were really interested in his music and he encouraged them. And so it was like a whole different world than where he grew up. And so he goes back down home, back down south, and it just hits him right between the eyes. You know, the only place that'll book him is a whites-only establishment about 10 miles out of the French Quarter. The very first night there... Uh, there's a radio announcer. His, his only job was just to announce him. You know, this is Louis Armstrong broadcasting from the suburban gardens. But right before they go on the air, the announcer says, you know, I just can't announce that N-word and, and walks off. And everybody thought that, you know, Armstrong was going to lose his top. But it's one of my favorite stories because it's like the, you know, the parables of Louis Armstrong. <laughs> he says, don't worry about it. And he asks the band to give him a chord. And he goes on and makes his own announcement. And he gets a standing ovation, and and for the entire three months at the Suburban Gardens, he did his own announcing on the radio every night. And he said that was the first time an African American even spoke on the radio down there. And this also happens at a point where he was really raking in the money. I mean, the Suburban Gardens kept on uh, increasing his salary, and Johnny Collins, for all of his flaws, I mean, he really did seem to pay Armstrong well. And so Armstrong is back home, and he he's just flooded with currency. And, um, you know, he pays it back. You know, he goes back to the, the old waif's home, buys him a radio, buys new instruments. You know, he, old friends, you know, giving out money left and right. And, you know, he has dinner with the Zulus, which he becomes king of the Zulus in 49. And so it's really uh, this kind of mixed thing where he's happy to be home and he's really made out well and he's popular at the Suburban Gardens because the Suburban Gardens was a whites-only venue, but they had open windows. You know, they were running a levee. And he said every night there'd be thousands of African-Americans sitting outside, you know, hearing him loud and clear. Uh, he's on the radio. So it's all positive, positive, positive. But then there's the stuff like... He always, I'm sorry, he starts with the baseball team, the Secret Nine, you know, the, the Sandlot team. He buys them uniforms and all this kind of stuff. But there is the racism there, you know, and there's the the announcer who called him the N-word. There's trouble with the union. The, you know, the union kicks him out. There's the newspapers, you know, people complaining about these black musicians, you know, these N-words taking the white musicians' jobs. And then the very last night, the culmination of the trip was supposed to be a dance just for black audiences. And the day of the dance with people coming from as far as Texas, uh, they called it off and no one could ever get a straight answer of why it happened. You know, rival clubs, rival band leaders. So, you know, just something happened. And uh, Armstrong ended up leaving and angering a lot of folks. And yeah, he also tells a story when he was packing to leave some of his friends, they, they swiped one of his watches and, you know, he lost some money. And so to me, that whole story is like Louis Armstrong's complex relationship with, with New Orleans in a nutshell, because it is beautiful and he talks about it every day of his life and it's so important to him and he sings songs about it and he mentions it in every interview, but there's just enough darkness there and, you know, the stuff he had to encounter, especially from a, a racism side, that he's in no rush to ever live there again. And I think for the rest of his life, he, he only returns home as a performer, you know, one-nighters or a short tour, but he's not going back home. Well, uh, thanks uh, for joining us today, Ricky, for more of a Louis Armstrong story. And um, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to suggest a piece of music uh, to go out with that uh, dovetails with Louis Armstrong in New Orleans. Oh, there's only one choice. When it's sleepy time down south, 
because um, Armstrong, this becomes his theme song. He records in April of 31, uh, right before he goes back home. And this is a song that meant so much to him. Uh, and it's also an extremely problematic song, <laughs> as I detail in the book. Um, but in his view, it was written by three African-American songwriters. It was specifically about New Orleans. I mean, that 1931 recording opens up with a little sketch, him talking about how long it's been since he's been back home, and he starts naming the food and all this nostalgia. And um, yeah, it even has an epithet in there, but Armstrong sings it with love because in, in his view, this was a song written by black people about black people. And even though folks sometimes, some folks kind of shuddered when he performed it, uh, this was probably the most intensely personal song he performed. It's why he became the, it's, it's why it became his theme song and how he would begin every show with it, just put him in that perfect frame of mind. Uh, and so I think for the, you know, what it meant to him, but also the loadedness of the South back then. I mean, I, I should quickly mention, you know, that tour of the South goes so horribly wrong with Armstrong getting arrested and all sorts of racism that when he re-records Sleepy Time Down South as part of a medley of Armstrong hits in December 1932, uh, he changes the title to When It's Slavery Time Down South uh, at one point. So, you know, he, he had his little subversive ways of dealing with this. So um, for all those factors, uh, I think, you know, we'll, we'll close with his opener, When It's Sleepy Time Down South. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Ricky. We'll talk with you uh, again soon about Louis Armstrong. And here is his uh, first recorded performance of When It's Sleepy Time Down South. The guy coming up the street looked like he's from my hometown. Like old Charles Alexander, man. Well, hold on, hold on, I believe it is, but what you say, Gabe? Well, what you say, Nipper? Well, what you know, Jim? Oh, nothing much, boy. How long you been up here, boy? Oh, I've been up here about, about a year and a half. Oh, a year and a half? <laughs> well, man, I've been up here a long time myself. I'm going back home. Well, go on, then. Oh, I'm going. Get some of them red beans and <laughs> big ears. <laughs> you remember them sweet potatoes, Dr.? <laughs> Get a load of this. This is why I'm going back. All the pale moon shining, the fields below. Dark is grooming on something low. You needn't tell me, boy, because I know. It's sleepy time down south. Mm. Soft wind blowing through the pinewood trees. Both down there live a life of ease. When old mammy falls upon her knees, it's sleepy time down south. Oh, steamboats on the river coming or going, splashing the night away. You hear the banjos ringing, the donkeys singing, the dance till the break of day. With a dream is on. Take me back to the Gallop Jones. Oh, how I'd love to hold her in my arms. 
When it's sleepy time down down. Mm-hmm. 